Welcome back to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. My name is Sonny Bunch. I'm culture editor at The Bulwark. Uh, and I'm very, very pleased to be joined today by Matthew Ball, the CEO of The Pillion uh, and the former global head of strategy for Amazon Studios, as well as the author of The Metaverse and How It Will Revolutionize Everything, uh, as well as the streaming book, which is what we're here to discuss today. Uh, Matthew, thanks for being on the show. It's my pleasure. All right. So uh, let's talk about the streaming book, because I, uh, I I told you this uh, over DMs as I was gushing that it really is. It's wonderful. And it uh, has uh, helped reshape kind of how I think about where the streaming wars are and how they got started. But let's let's set the stage for listeners here. How do you define the start of the streaming wars? Because streaming itself, I mean, it's roughly as old as the mass adoption of the Internet. Um, you know, where do you mark? the beginning of actual, you know, quote unquote, conflict or competition, really. Uh, and why does that delineation matter from trying to figure out where things go from here? So it's a great question, and it's really where I focus my thesis in this dreaming book. There's three to four different delineations we can make. One is that period from the end of 2019 to early 2021, where nearly every laggard in the so-called streaming wars comes to market. We see Peacock, HBO Max, Paramount Plus all launch. We see several parties who said they would never offer original content enter the fray, such as Tubi or Roku. And of course, we see some of the early exits in Quibi and so forth. Another potential dating point is 2007 to really 2011. Apple TV, the device comes to market, the Roku comes to market, Netflix and Hulu launch, Prime Video launches. And so we see those early disruptors come to market. The other point is the one that you mentioned, which is actually that streaming video itself, the technology, began to be deployed in 92, 93, 94 to 96. You'd be shocked at how mature it was. This is when we had the first live streaming concerts, the first live to air streaming webcams on ABC, but also the mass rollout of technical standards that enabled anyone to live broadcast. But I'd like to start really in the early 2000s. Why? Because that's when MLB TV comes to market, the first direct-to-consumer streaming service with a live broadcast, thousands and ultimately millions of subscribers, releasing tens of thousands of streaming videos every year. And that's when Netflix's technical developments begin. They scuttled several plans. They delayed their streaming release by a few years. But that's when the preparations began. That timeline that spans truly a quarter century plus is important because it reminds us the pace of technological change and displacement is long. We think of the streaming wars as having begun recently and that they might end or mature soon. But in truth, these waves are long. Cable began in 1948. It wasn't until 2002 that it passed broadcast. It wasn't until 2010 that it had peak penetration, and it wasn't until 2012 that it started to decline. We're a quarter century into streaming video until the streaming wars begin, and yet we're still less than one-third of all video time in the United States, one-tenth globally. If you understand the scope of streaming as much longer, you recognize that we're in a battle right now, not the end of the war, and that indeed, we may not even know all of the participants or business models that might come to define it. 
and and in your book, you lay out three basically stages of competition. Um, there's access based competition to content based competition to platform based competition. Um, but those are just words that I'm saying. Uh, what what do they actually mean to 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 the folks who haven't read the book and should you should read this? I'm going to link to it in the email. You got to read it to understand what's going on. Well, thank you. One of the ways that I define the very long period of technological change and disruption is to understand how the basis of competition changes therein. And it's partly out of my desire to avoid the classic is distribution or content king. We all know in 2023, the answer is both matter. They matter in different ways at different times and neither is sufficient for success. What I try to do is highlight that when we have a new medium come to market, what matters differs, the opportunities differ, the timing differs. And so I start with access, which is to say that every now and then we have a fundamentally new delivery technology emerge, which disrupts the old access modality and enables new entrants to quickly gain share by cannibalizing the old thing. This was cable to broadcast. It was DVD to VHS. It was streaming to pay TV. In that early era, the access era, Growth comes primarily from educating people as to the benefits of the new modality, cannibalizing time from the old modality. There's bountiful growth opportunities for those few players which participate, and competitive intensity is low. Reed Hastings often talked about the idea that more important than beating Amazon for a given series was convincing more people that streaming was better than linear TV. But eventually, the difficulties of access technologies, streaming video, live video encoding, app development and distribution, customer acquisition, commodify. Streaming video was terribly hard in 2007. In 2023, it's fair to say that some apps are much better than others and they're not all the same, but it's easy. And one of the reasons why it's easy is we have gone from dozens of engineers at the forefront of streaming video to thousands with that experience. It's the commodification of access innovations, business model insights, that leads to the influx of new competitors. That's why in 2023, we all talk about how many streaming services there are, rather than in 2008 when there were two. When that happens, competition shifts from being a pioneer in an access technology to the purpose of access in the first place, which is to watch content. And so we see a huge focus on what content we have that our competitors don't. You see a surge in green lights in originals. We see each player start taking back their content, building up franchises that allow them to say, we're the home of X. And our competitors have content, but they don't have X. What we're starting to encounter now, truly we've been on a multi-year path to it, is just as access saturated, content-based competition is starting to mature or oversaturate. Having a 270th original doesn't give you the lift that your 14th would. Being a service that says we have a signature series may get you one subscriber for one month, but it's not building defensibility over the long term. All of the streaming services are now cutting back on their libraries because they're recognizing that they're not sufficient for competition not sufficient for profit. And what we've seen over the past century in gaming, in audio, in video, in broadband and video distribution is this last phase, 
which is platform, which is asking yourself, what more can we do with the customer we have? How do we monetize them beyond the sole product we have? And that's why you start to see Netflix shifting into gaming, HBO Max shifting into podcasting. You see Disney Plus adding a shop tab. And my guess is we're going to see far more to come. The, the the shift to the platform based competition was uh, was interesting to me because it, it kind of um, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but it kind of jibes with the sense I got from uh, your book, The Metaverse, which is you basically have uh, you, you have sites that are increasing in size and scope and what they do and trying to capture attention for longer periods of time. I mean, I you know, I, I just took my family to Disney World. I can envision a future in which we buy tickets to Disney World right on the Disney Plus app. You know, that's a thing that makes some sense to me. Um, but uh, is that, I mean, I like how far are we from that being a reality? I feel like it's still kind of a long way off to convince consumers that this is how they should access everything within a specific, you know, company's walled garden. Well, so there are a few different things that we should recognize here. One such example is that we've been here before. My favorite example is I talk about what happened to pay TV distributors, Xfinity or Charter Spectrum, which is they used to be in the business of access. We're providing access to video, cable. And then throughout the 90s and early 2000s, content-based competition emerged. The differentiation came from what you distributed, not that you distributed video. And we saw a massive shift of profitability outside of those who distributed video and to those who created content. That was concomitant with the rise of DirecTV and Dish, which meant that Xfinity used to have zero or one competitor in their footprint, and all of a sudden they had three or four, shifting margins to the content owner. By around 2012, EBITDA margins for video distribution were sub 10% and often zero. Comcast wasn't making a dollar on a video subscription, it was all going to NBC Universal or Fox. And so they shifted to their own platform. This is where you saw double play, triple play, quad play. They didn't make their money on video. They made it on a home phone, on smart home, on broadband, most importantly. And they would often sell at a loss video service A or B to get those other revenue sources. And so we see that over time. It's no different than where Prime started. Prime started around the idea that video is a platform for the rest of our business, both video, Prime, but more importantly, e-commerce and indeed AWS, it fits within a larger business. When you ask this fundamental question of where are we going with these video services, that foray has already started. When you take a look at Disney in November, they rolled out a shop tab. They have already started targeting the ads that you see on the platform based on the content that you're watching with the argument that they can better tailor their other services. Put another way, if you're watching a lot of Star Wars, they know you're likely to buy a ticket to Disneyland. And let me tell you, the ad you're going to see for Disneyland is not focused on cars. It's focused on Star Wars. Uh, I will well, to be fair, now, I will probably get a lot of cars ads, too, because I have a four-year-old boy uh, who gets... Uh, but but that's that's neither here nor there. You, you mentioned ads. I want to jump to ads real quick because um, this was one of the... This is one of the, you know, just personally for me, more distressing elements of uh, of your book and kind of where we are in the streaming wars in general, which is the um, the turn to ads that all the streamers are making now, the the increased reliance on ads and the the desire to uh, kind of monetize that 
the data they're getting and the the information to target viewers. Uh, I I mean, I personally hate ads and I will gladly play, pay more for ad free services, but they are too valuable to give up on entirely. My my willingness to not pay for ads does not make up for the value of ads. Isn't, isn't that right? On average, that's the case. Now, it depends on the individual. It may be that you would be willing to spend $25 for Disney Plus without ads as opposed to the 13 that they offer. But for the average person, the price that they are willing to pay to avoid ads is less than the revenue that they would generate by watching them. This is a generally observed fact. And the fact of the matter is, it's also a bit of a catch-22 which is to say the more individuals who opt for the ad-free experience, the greater the scarcity of video ads that are available for advertisers, increasing their CPM, and in doing so, increasing the business case to convert Sunny into an ad-supported viewer, which means that the delta between the two tiers goes up. Mm -hmm. And that's what we see. Hulu, as an example, has increased its ad free price while maintaining its ad supported price. Disney Plus didn't do the Netflix model of let's introduce a cheaper tier for our ad service. They said, let's keep the current ad free price, the new ad supported price and kick up the price for the ad free tier. My guess is we will continue to see Disney increase the ad free price, maintaining the ad supported price so that they can convince more people to enter that lower tier. Again, there are exceptions to that, but we tend to find that's how it works. And driving that causally is also another mini catch 22, which is the users with the most ability to buy out ad inventory are higher income viewers. Higher income viewers are naturally more valuable to advertisers and therefore force the price up even more. Yeah, I, I, like I said, it's a real problem, and I'm not excited for it to get worse uh, for me personally. And that's, uh, of course, the thing I, I worry most about. Um, the the key here, the 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 underlying point of this this whole saga is unlocking shareholder value. Uh, so you know, you, you take the case of Lionsgate, right? Lionsgate decides that it generates more shareholder value to sell their original series, The Continental, to Peacock than put it on their their streaming service, Stars, right? Sony decides to become the biggest arms dealer on the block rather than pour money into either a, the PlayStation-based network or, you know, or, or what else, uh, whatever else they're working on. Um, and now the studios are starting to get into that act as well, right? Warner's licenses its content to other streamers and keep, instead of keeping everything on an, uh, HBO Max or Max, whatever we're calling that. Disney is doing kind of the same thing. Are we going to see something, in at least in the short and medium term here, are we seeing something like a reversion to the norm when it comes to library rights, as opposed to original programming, which, you know, makes more sense to wall off on your own? Well, I think part of what you're describing is exactly that phase from content to platform competition, which is to say, we understand how you thrive in the content era. You make your best content, you make it exclusive to you. But in the case of stars, they were finding out that they could not out monetize their competitors, even their best content vertically integrated into Lionsgate with their own originals coming in-house was actually not the best way to monetize their customers. And by that, I don't mean customers of stars. I mean, customers of the John Wick franchise. That forced them into a platform model of building an audience in the theater, 
sending it to third-party services through the John Wick franchise and Continental. This is a reflection of the maturation of the space. We're seeing the same thing with Warner Bros. They're saying we have fans of Batman. There's a limit to how much we can monetize them on HBO Max. And so let's take a back catalog of The Dark Knight and sell it to Netflix. Keep in mind, Dark Knight's a great movie. That's from 2008. It's 16 years old now. At the same time, I do think we have to differentiate between types of licensing decisions that are happening in 2023. Some are happening because of debt. Warner Media has few options other than to license its content. For every dollar in equity they have, they have four and a half dollars in debt. It's funny, you make the point of increasing shareholder value. The truth of the matter is, Warner Bros. Discovery does not work for shareholders. It works for bondholders. And that's the fact of the matter of saying 80% of the company is owned by debtors. And that's driving a lot of licensing decisions. In the case of stars, we're seeing licensing because they cannot monetize nearly as effectively. I use this quote from Jeff Hirsch. He says that selling the Continental was seven to eight times more valuable to shareholders. That's remarkable. When have you ever heard an IP owner say, there's a 700% increase if we don't vertically integrate? Normally you would say if we're both content and distribution, that's more valuable. There's another two categories of licensing decisions that we're seeing. One are those for whom they have significant extra capacity that they cannot economically fulfill. The Walt Disney Company used to make 25 films per year. Iger took them down to 12 under his franchise strategy. They then acquired Fox, can make another 25 movies per year, but they only make 15. So you have a studio that can make 50 films per year, has a back catalog, infrastructure, differentiated capabilities for 50 films per year, but only makes 20. And so they're sitting there saying we have excess capacity that our streaming service can't absorb. And we believe we can monetize by specifically making content, which does not fit our model, but we can sell to our competitors. That's separate from whether or not that's strategically good. It may be that they empower Netflix more than the revenues they get, but that's a model. And then there's a fourth strategy, which is when these services recognize that much of the library they own is just off-piste. 20th Century Fox has, I believe, in excess of 40% of all Oscar-nominated best pictures many of which are silent films, but some of which are just Hitchcock. Those are not a great fit for Disney+. Plus. I think we can argue that Disney+, Plus mm -hmm. may get viewership, but it's hard to argue that Disney+, Plus customers are going to pay more to Disney+, Plus to have celebrated 60s films from the Fox catalog. And so Disney is making the decision that we're sitting on something with value, which we cannot get value from, that customers would like, and frankly, our talent partners would like to see generating revenue, and so they're licensing those. Those are four very different situations. The first two come from uh, literal financial stress or suboptimal performance. The latter two are more about incremental revenues, and so that's relevant as well. Yeah. I, you know, you, you mentioned something being good for Disney plus versus, you know, not making sense and, and selling it off. Um, you know, I, I, you could make, I mean, I think you could make a case that something like the Hitchcock stuff would be good on Hulu. But one of the things, uh, one of the things you talk about in, in the book, um, 
is the the again this is the move to platform based uh, competition the consolidation of these these apps into one i just if uh, if i can if i can um talk about my own my own thinking and experience here my my the way i always kind of looked at the streaming wars was you're going to have more options you'll be able to get this but not this uh and maybe the cost comes down but it probably won't whatever and you kind of see that in the disney plus bundle right you have disney uh hulu espn plus you can get either of them separately or all of them together for a discount uh that is not what disney is doing around the world like disney disney has one app for for all that stuff uh in other parts of the world um and it also seems to be what they are trying to get away from here it's what hbo max is trying to get away from right warner brothers discovery is trying to get away from that with hbo max they want everybody on this new app max um uh instead of on hbo max and discovery and elsewhere i i i I wonder, look, I'll put it this way. From my perspective, as somebody who looks at what customers do and how they behave, I wonder if this is creating more brand confusion um, in the short term than is absolutely necessary. And also if it's something that they even want. It's a good question. Look, at the end of the day, this is primarily driven by the fact that the thing that destroys all services is churn. It's very challenging to have the same customer across four different services when they therefore have to evaluate each of them independently, might constantly cycle in and out of them and struggle to understand their correlationship. That's not to say that jumbling them all together into a singular offering is suddenly crisp and clear and valuable, but there's an understanding or rather an observation that it is easier for the consumer and likely financially advantageous. Let me give you a good example. You're right to say that Disney seems to be collapsing its SKUs or its services internationally and increasingly inclined domestically. But let's keep in mind, Disney Plus itself is probably four different streaming services in the United States. It's Disney Kids, it's Disney Preteen, it's Disney General Entertainment, and it's Nat Geo. Those could all be separate services. And there are many homes in the United States which would pay eight for one, five for another, five for another, 10 for another. Their decision to sell all of them for $13 is therefore harming the monetization of probably a family like yours and a family like mine. But it leads to more subscribers overall and more importantly, significantly less churn. And that's how the math tends to run out. When you look internationally, it's in fact five services or six because they're also blending Hulu in and they're also blending in ESPN Plus, not in a bundle, pay one, get three services in the same app. Right, right. Uh, the the we haven't really talked about churn at all, and it is uh, it is a, a an immensely difficult topic for these uh, for these companies. But one 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 stat that I read recently that jumped out at me, uh, I think it was during maybe maybe it was during the uh, Discovery HBO uh, the Warner Brothers Discovery shareholder meeting was that as much as 50% of churn is simply based on people's credit cards expiring and then them not signing back up. I mean, I, I'm, I'm curious from, uh, from your perspective as, as strategist, how much, of, how much of churn is incidental versus strategic on the basis, uh, on, the, on the part of the customer to say, we don't want this anymore, we want something else, we're getting that. Oh, I mean, a... I'm not familiar with the statistic that you're looking at. It's certainly different from my understanding. 
in the streaming book I published online, all of the churn that I'm doing is called active churn. That's a decision okay. rather than credit card ex expirations. We should also note that many strategies have emerged to proactively address that. And it's partly a question of the streaming ser service themselves. One of the reasons why you're asked for your credit card expiration is it reduces fraud, which is to say the more points of information that a vendor asks from you, the better the job they can do in ensuring that the transaction is legitimate. But in particular, they ask for your expiration so that they can say, Sonny, in three months, your credit card's gonna expire. Can you change that? And it is certainly true that a number of services that have had customers for years never asked at the time, never prompted for it to be added. And therefore, when those three to four years pass, do lose that customer because they didn't even know the credit card was going to expire. But it's relatively rare. One of the reasons why I would say that is we can see what has happened over time. Since 2019, the average tenure for a customer has gone from 33 months to a given service to 17 months. What that means, of course, is that your time to monetize that customer who you might have spent $100 to acquire has effectively halved. The number of customers who have canceled three plus services in the last 24 months has gone from less than six to more than one in four. And it goes up in perpetuity. The quest, the answer of just old credit cards is not sufficient. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that is certainly my understanding from just people I talk to are like, yeah, I do Netflix for a month or two. And then I, you know, then I do HBO Max for a month or two. Uh, apparently, I've had a subscription to Apple TV Plus this whole time. I didn't even know. Uh, it's it's it is it is very, very interesting. Um, I, one thing I want to ask here is um, about the the kind of standalone smaller mid-level studios. Right. Does is there a future for something like uh a company like Lionsgate without a a winning streaming service or a company like Columbia Sony Pictures without a, uh, you know, PlayStation backed uh, video service. Is is there a is there a place in the future for arms dealer type studios to exist or will those all get wrapped up into the the dominant platform based uh, victors? I don't think that the right question is. Is there a place for them? There certainly is. If you can make outstanding content, certainly with franchises that you own, that can be a great business in perpetuity. Sony, for example, has a fleet of different Spider-Man series that are now set up at Amazon. They have all of the PlayStation properties that are being built. They're making into the Spider-Verse, a theatrical film. That business can continue. We can debate whether or not the markup might go from x to 0.8x or if in fact the greater scarcity might mean that they'll increase what they're charging third-party streaming services over time there's a variety of different theses for that when you take a look at a company like lionsgate they've announced that they're making a twilight television series now we know that there are more hunger games adaptations coming they obviously have john wick that can endure the question is is it a growth business and the question is is the company better put to use through acquisition and do we eventually see one of these parties buy Lionsgate because they can do a better job internally? That's not yet. No. Okay. But 
but there's no evidence to suggest that you can't be a thriving independent media company. Mm -hmm. It just forces you a little bit more towards how effective has your last two or three years of development been. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, it's, it's more unstable is, is, is the, the problem. Um, the, uh, there, there was a, there was a very interesting data point in, in your streaming book, uh, about how people actually watch, how people actually watch. And what I mean is like what they actually watch on. Um, what does it mean? What does it mean for Netflix and for everybody else that, uh, signups in, in initial viewings mostly happen on laptops and phones and then shift decisively toward TV viewing by month six? I mean, is this, a is does this change what sort of content they create or is it just a, is it just kind of an interesting thing? Well, so there's two different insights here and I think it's important to separate between them. It's natural that most customers are acquired on a mobile device rather than a television. We've all tried to log in or pay for something on our television. It's a particularly cumbersome experience, even worse if you're using the dreadful Apple TV remote. It's just <laughs> easier to hit subscribe on an iPhone. And so you'll see that the vast majority of signups happen on a mobile device, but most consumption does not happen on a mobile device. What's more interesting is that customer tenure is strongly correlated with what percentage of your viewing happens on the television. That is to say that in month one, you will spend more of your watch time on mobile devices than in month six and in month 12. Over time, you concentrate viewing to the television screen. There are a few different drivers for that. Number one is we find consistently that the best content is watched on the television. And so naturally, as you become more engaged with more series, you might have started Stranger Things on your iPad in bed, but you get really into it and you want to watch the finale in the next season on the screen where you're going to enjoy it the most. The second is not causal, it's correlated which is if the big screen is the best screen to watch, then naturally the customers who churn are more likely to be watching on a mobile device because they're not as engaged in the content, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. And so we see through a mixture of changing habit and selection bias, centricity around the big screen. And a last point is to recognize that the shows that make a difference that actually leads Sonny or Matt to say, well, I can't cancel, tend to be the big sci-fi epics. Some shows scale down okay to a four inch or eight inch screen, but the big epics tend not to. And if those are your driving choice, your Game of Thrones, your House of the Dragon, your Mandalorian, then yeah, it makes sense that they're concentrated on the big TV. One one last kind of big area that we, we haven't really discussed at all is gaming. I mean, Netflix is making a big push into gaming. They're they're trying to get uh, things there. You you uh, I think I mentioned in the streaming book the possibility of, um, you know, I, I don't know, playing Hogwarts Legacy on on the, the new Max app or something like that at some point in the future. Um, what is what is the what does the future of gaming look like uh, in 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 the context of the streaming wars? So one of the points that I try to make when I'm using the gaming example, just as, as a start, is if I've been successful in the book, and we talked about this a little bit up front, we recognize that the streaming wars are much longer than we typically think, that they're 30 years in. And we can appreciate that every video wave has actually been more than a half century. 
That means that while we might think that the battlefield is set, we know who's playing, who's likely to win and who's likely to lose, we might be underestimating who might enter. Microsoft was actually one of the first entrants to the streaming wars. In 2012, they established Xbox Entertainment Studios, hired the president of CBS, Nancy Tellum, to build up a slate. Many of those shows have actually seen the light of day. Halo on Paramount Plus started with Xbox Studios. Humans on AMC started with Xbox Studios. And actually, years before any other streaming service did live broadcast, Xbox was doing live broadcasts of Miss Teen USA in 2014. They struggled with that business early on. Xbox and Microsoft were weaker at the time than they are now. Microsoft is now the second most valuable company on earth sitting on 150 billion in cash. They might re-enter, and there's a good argument as to why they can. They have 55 million Xbox owners. They have 125 million members of the Xbox Live subscription service. They have their own content bundle. They're spending more on original content than almost all streamers are today through their portfolio. And they now own many of the biggest franchises globally. Apple rebooted their video strategy four times. Prime Video has gone through its own growing pains. And I make the point that if you say the streaming wars are a quarter century in, Microsoft could choose to return. They could do that through a Roku acquisition or a Netflix acquisition. I also make the point that Sony has been an arms dealer, even if they had early aspirations of entering the streaming wars. But like Microsoft, they have now 150 million consumer streaming devices in the home. They have one of the most valuable catalogs globally. And in fact, in Eastern Europe, they are adding streaming video to their PlayStation subscription. And so we may find that these players have largely skipped the nastiest parts of the streaming wars. While the battlefield thinned, their competitors loaded up on debt, scoop up a Lionsgate, scoop up a Paramount, merge with the Netflix, and use that as a way to return. Whether or not that happens or not is kind of besides the point. It's the fact that they could do that, and they could do that starting with scale of 100 million plus, that tells you this is a longer battle than we thought. Mm -hmm. When it comes to this broader question of gaming, we can see the short-term elements. Obviously, this IP is resonating. It's notable that most of the major gaming companies actually have larger and far more profitable monthly subscription services than all of the big Hollywood companies today. And whereas we debate the future profitability of video and whether it could ever match the past, no one debates that the future of gaming isn't going to be bigger, bigger and more profitable. Um, all right. Well, that was everything uh, I wanted to ask. I want to chew up too much more of your time here. Um, I always like to close these interviews by asking if there's anything I should have asked. If you think there's anything folks should know about streaming war, uh, anything else I, I failed to ask, uh, what, what should folks know about? Well, that's a good question. Let me put it back to you. What's the thing you're least certain about when we look at the state of the streaming wars in 2030? Uh, in 2030? Uh, 2030. I mean, I, I, my, my, again, my, uh, Big question here is, uh, is, is how does consolidation work for the actual consumer? I mean, are we, if we're moving back towards something like the cable bundle where you, you end up just get it, like, I'm going to get a package that's Netflix and Disney plus and max. And it's going to cost me, you know, 60 bucks a year or 60 bucks a month. And that basically gets me back to what I was watching before. I don't know. I mean, I'm, um, I, 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 I tend to look at all of this from the. 
um, consumer side of things and what makes their life, my life, easier and better? Um, and that's that's always a, a my my first question. Well, I think this is an easy one, actually. There are all these questions of consolidation, and I think it's important to delineate between three different types of consolidation that we've seen. One is service level consolidation. If you go back to Warner Media, at the time AT&T acquired it, they had 10 plus streaming services. Cinemax, HBO Max, TNT, and TBS were both prepping one. There was Criterion, Filmstruck, WB Archive. Why was Filmstruck, Criterion, and WB Archive separate? Mm -hmm. They slowly started consolidating all of them. I mentioned earlier that we have Disney Plus, whereas we could have a kids version, a preteen version, a general entertainment, and a Nat Geo service. So we already have these many networks collapsing. Peacock is itself NBC plus USA plus Bravo, and that's what the future looked like a decade ago. The second element of consolidation is corporate. Fox and Disney are now together. Discovery and HBO are now together. And so we do have the reformulation at the corporate layer plus the sister brand layer. The third element of consolidation is happening at the aggregator layer. We know that Amazon and Apple have tried before to replicate the old HBO Showtime stars bundle by offering a discount to rival services to package together. I don't doubt that that will eventually happen, but even if it doesn't financially, they are still experientially lumped together. If you get Showtime and Stars and MGM Plus from Prime Video, yes, you're gonna see three different line items on your Prime bill, but you're getting them from a single app. Those three elements are returning us to the cable that we knew, love, and often hated in 2010. But the more important point and this is where I think a lot of analysis is flawed, is everyone says streaming was supposed to be better than pay TV. How come it's more separated and more expensive? And this is to conflate two very different things. We have disrupted business models, we have disrupted delivery, and we have disrupted the hegemony of you know, Viacom and NBC Universal and Disney in 2010, but we have not at all disrupted the cost of production. We spend far more making content on an episode by episode basis than ever before, and we make more of it than ever before. There is no way for television to be cheaper if you haven't actually affected the cost side and instead have seen it worsened. We can talk about whether or not cutbacks and more financial controls at Disney and Warner Bros. Discovery will help. But it's notable that back in 2010, these companies were making 40% profit margins. They're now losing tens of percent. And so we're complaining about the cost of television, even though no one's making money from it. And so if you have that dynamic, we should not expect that consolidation is going to alleviate our wallet. Mm -hmm. And that's what's important. This is incidentally why... Everyone is so excited about growing UGC, about generative AI, about virtual production, is we're finally starting to see a way not just to change which pipe and app and company brand name we push video through, but actually how we made the video in the first place. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, I mean, it's uh, again, you, you guys got to read this book, uh, the streaming book. I'll, I'll link to it in the email. Um, it is a uh, it is fascinating. I could have uh, we could have done this for another hour, probably. Uh, but I uh, I'm going to I'm going to let uh, Matt go here. Um, thank you for being on the show. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. I look forward to doing it again. Uh, and uh, my name is Sonny Bunch. I'm culture editor at The Bulwark, and I will be back next week with another episode of The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. We'll see you guys then.